0: This was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work
1: I feel like we got top, top, top.
0: I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt
1: one hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, it's John Warlow. So after five years of hosting Built to Sell Radio, I've distilled the secrets from the most successful founders into the ultimate field guide. The Art of Selling Your Business, Winning Strategies and Secret Hacks for Exiting on Top is now available. The Art of Selling Your Business is a playbook for punching above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. Now, you may still be years away from selling, but there are actions you can take now that will make your business irresistible to an acquirer in the future. And in this book, you'll get answers to your most vexing questions like, when's the right time to sell? How should I value my business? What are the biggest mistakes owners make when they sell? How do I get multiple offers? How do I attract an offer from an acquirer without looking like I'm desperate to sell? How many companies should I approach? How do I separate real acquirers from tire kickers? When in the process do I reveal my numbers? When and how do I tell my employees? How do I avoid retrading when the buyer drops their price during diligence? In the age old, how do I avoid an earnout? Along with actionable answers to the questions, you'll also get a playbook for defending yourself against the dirty tricks used by the most unscrupulous acquirers, including how to defend yourself against retrading. Acquirers who intentionally set unattainable earnout goals, financing an acquirer's business, becoming a prop deal, strategic pacing, competitors posing as acquirers, accepting illiquid or overvalued shares for your business in lieu of cash, and giving away your retained earnings as part of your deal. You'll also get easy to understand definitions of some of the most bewildering terms acquirers use. And negotiating to buy your business stuff like tipping basket, covenant, downstroke, escrow, indemnification, earnout, V, reps and warranties, churn. I'm just about to throw up just using all this industry lingo, but you'll get a definition for each of them, in an easy to understand package. If you order The Art of Selling Your Business today, you'll receive a collection of thank you gifts to enjoy alongside the book. Just go to builttosell.com/selling. Have you ever received an offer from a private equity group? My guess is in the last year or two, you probably have. Low interest rates are really fueling an entire army of private equity groups that are rolling up and buying up small, mid sized businesses, including my next guest company, Fresh Meal Plan, which was run by Mark Elkman. It was one of these food delivery spaces where they were dropping off fresh meal kits, if you will, to fitness enthusiasts in South Florida to begin with. The business was a huge success, went from zero to 20 million, if you can imagine, in just three years, which is around the time Mark agreed to sell the majority of his shares to a private equity group. And here to tell you again, the good, the bad, and the ugly associated with that deal is Mark Elkman himself. Mark Elkman, welcome to Bullet Sell Radio.
0: Thanks for having me, John.
1: Yeah, no problem. So t- let's talk about Fresh Meal Plan. I think a lot of people have got a sense of, the, of, of, of these meal delivery services now, but
0: you were one of the pioneers. T- take me through the story. So uh, just to give you a brief background, I grew up in a fitness household. My mom played on the LPGA. Um, I was the kid behind the gym desk at three years old while she was working out. She's taking me to Whole Foods and all these farmer markets. I never really quite experienced fast food, right? So that's where it all began. I got into um, baseball. I was a collegiate athlete, um, had a scholarship, academic athletically, Um, always had a passion for for weightlifting and weight training. So I became a personal trainer, got into bodybuilding shows naturally, of course, Uh, won won one, and I kind of packed it up at that point. Um, but I did have a massive network of people who were into fitness, right. You know, I had so many friends of our trainers and we all had so many clients, so on and so forth. Um, well, I was, I was always looking to see what I could do coming out of college. So as I was getting nearer to, to graduation, I was a, you know, business major and hospitality major. I was like, what am I going to do? I, I want to work for myself. I could take risk. I'm 23 years old. Um, I don't have dependence. So, I was like, I'm going to do something in fitness naturally. I don't know if I want to run a gym. I don't see how that scales unless you have a bunch, right? A lot of employees. One day I was picking up at a gym, a brown bag of food. I was subscribed to a meal plan company. Um, I was going to the gym locally and I'd pick up this brown bag. It had 10 meals in it. The food was, you know, frozen vegetables. Um, very, you know, bland chicken and you know, very bland rice. But at the end of the day, I was eating for macros. I was eating for results, not necessarily for flavor.
1: Food um, is fuel, as opposed to you that's know, that's right. Food, whatever, yeah. yeah, I got yeah.
0: Some people. I know live- guys like
1: you. I hate guys like you. I'm like, ah, <laughs> oh,
0: man, it's not fuel. That's right. People fuel. eat to live, and others live to eat. Right. That's I'm, right. I'm eat to live. My, that's a household I grew up in. Um, I was working at a country club at the time where I live in Boca. It's one of the largest clubs in the country. I was doing personal training, getting my degree. Um, and I was friendly with the executive chef there. And he had a really incredible background. And I brought this brown bag of food to him one day. And I said, this is what I'm eating. I can't believe that there was 50 bags sitting in this fridge. I'm paying $100 a week. That's $5,000 sitting in that fridge. And this guy just told me he has this relationship with 10 other gyms. So I started doing the math. I said to the chef, and I remember to this day about 10 years ago now, I said, if you can give me better food, I can get everybody to eat it. And he took the food out. You know, this guy with this big, you know, chef hat and the whole deal, he goes, Mark, he goes, he laughed. He goes, I've been waiting to get out of the country club for a while now. He goes, I'm in. So sure enough, we went and got a little Quizno shop a couple miles away and uh, we started making food. I started going to my trainer friends. So training. quiznos mean like it closed down. You have closed, to, there was a, yeah, you, yeah, okay, not a old, quiz, old quiznos, yeah, yeah, old, old quiznos, quiznos the retired yeah. quiznos. Okay, had, <laughs> had the basics, did the typical, you know, the toe in the water strategy. Every I'm still training. He's still a chef. Um, we, you know, immediately went to my close contacts. I wrote a list. I'm like these 20 people I can count on buying and supporting me. Right. That list quickly turned into 100 and 200 people all paying 100 dollars a week. Right. So. Very quickly in, you know, 60, 90 days in, we picked up a couple hundred customers. Now we're busting out the seams of this Quiznos. Um, we then found this commissary, you know, 20 miles away. And What's a commissary? I've heard that word, but I've, I've never understood what it is. Sure. So a commissary is essentially a, a turnkey operation where you can go and produce a product, right? So I like didn't a have a kitchen? Like kitchen. Yeah. So okay. this place had the hood systems where you can cook under. It had the refrigeration to store your food if you had to go do that yourself, you're talking about a lot of capex. I mean, you know, this particular commissary probably cost two, $3 million with all the equipment there. And I just had to pay rent. And Mari, how much, like, how did you, it, Patrick
1: was the name of the chef at the country, yeah. group, right? How yeah. did you guys divvy up the equity? Did you both put in cash or like, what was the, how was, how did that work?
0: So, so, um, this is one of the feel good parts of the story. We both put $10,000 in and we never had to look back and reinvest with $20,000. We turned around and built a $20 million company. So Uh, did you guys go 50, 50? We did. did. Yeah. So he's like, I'm going to cook you. I'm going to cook the food and you're going to sell the food. Right. So it was a very symbiotic relationship, which from my experience, you always want to look for that when finding a partner the less overlap, the better, right? So overlapping skills leads to, you know, arguments down the road from what I've experienced.
1: Yeah, so, okay, so let me just challenge that and tell me your thoughts. Like, challenge is not the right word. I guess there's been some situations I can think of a Built to Soar Radio episode I did a couple of weeks ago with a guy named Greg Alexander, who quickly shared equity with his co-founder, but it was kind of Greg's idea and Greg was the driving engine of the thing. Anyways, he ended up selling it for a truckload of money and, and kind of in retrospect said, like, did I have to give away half the business? I don't know. Do you, have you had any of those thoughts uh, th- uh, that maybe, maybe it wasn't right to go half and half and maybe I should have hired someone if I could afford it? Like, it, it? How do you feel about the decision to just split it half and half with Patrick and go, given everything that's kind of gone on since then?
0: in this circumstance, it was a phenomenal deal. We, he, Patrick could have been my, my father's age. He has kids, my age, um, you know, well-respected guy on, on you know, in, in this, you know, in, in this area. Um, and, and he delivered 50%, I delivered 50%. I've had other relationships and business dealings. I've had, you know, several other businesses can't quite say the same every time, but if I could have every partnership, um, you know, mimic the the partnership I with Patrick, I would, uh, I would be in, in great shape here. So I um, like
1: you guys were yin and yang, right? Like you, we you had very clear day. lines of, you know, swim lanes. You knew what you were doing. Exactly. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So you get the commissary, you, you rented the space, so you didn't have the capex of like right. buying, all right. the, you know, that's awesome. Right. Um, how are you winning customers? Like what's the, how did you go beyond your immediate network to, to sort of right. expanding that?
0: So, so I, you know, at the time I wasn't really, you know, an expert at digital marketing, but I was definitely an expert at marketing myself. Um, So what I did is we went into all the gyms in South Florida, the CrossFits, the Orange Theories, the, the local, you know, whether it be LA Fitnesses, and we went in there and it was such a, a symbiotic product in fitness, right? I've got healthy food. You're running a fitness establishment. Wouldn't we all agree that if everyone ate healthy and worked out that they'd all be in shape? You can't argue that, that theory, right? Food is, they say, 70 to 80% of the overall result achieved in, in your overall, you know, look and well-being. And everyone agrees with that theory. You really can't out train a bad diet. So it was easy to go into these fitness facilities and say, hey, can I sample and give away food to your members, add value to your fitness establishment for free? And if they want to sign up, would you allow that? Right. Would you allow them to subscribe to my service? So like, let me try the food. Let me see if I agree with you. They all tasted the food and like, wow, great food, great price come in. So the mechanics were you, you sampled
1: for them. How did the sampling work? Did you like literally cook up some stuff and had people like grab half a, you know, a Dorito like a burrito or whatever on the spot, or did they get a free (laughs) subscription? Like how did the sampling piece work?
0: So what we would do our typical displays we'd bring several meals so you would see what a full size meal would look like we had stuff like a paleo program a vegetarian so we were focused on the fitness consumer with cutting edge products we'd bring meals so they could see what they're getting but in preparation for the event we would have little mini mini sample cups the okay. chef would provide you know a hundred samples we'd bring a six foot table open it everyone would sample the food when they're done the workout and they'd be on their way. We'd like to sign people up on the spot, and we were very successful at that. But this was purely grassroots, as and you did the,
1: did the gym take a cut of the subscription? Did you pay per That's subscription? later
0: in the story. <laughs> but, but that, <laughs> that, that, that it evolved to that... There's, there's an, it evolved to that, but day one, no day one, we were leveraging food because I didn't have a margin to give away. Right. So I'll give, I'll let you, Mr. Gym owner, I'm a new company. You like my product. We all agree. I had no competitors fighting for that gym space at the time back in 2011, I'll give you free food worth a hundred a week. Typically, these gym owners are into working out in the fitness themselves. So like, wow, that's really valuable to me. Right. So that worked out extremely well and and it got us a long way we built a we built a great company utilizing this one strategy got it so the the gym owner
1: got the free membership or subscription correct in addition the gym members the people that kind of came and right. went they got some free sample and if they wanted to correct. sign up they
0: could sign up direct. absolutely and we're we're yeah. adding value to the experience of working out imagine owning a gym which i happen to own several and at the end of your workout you got someone that wants to give you a free massage you got somebody that wants to give you you know XYZ gyms love the added value, you know. Sure. So we we definitely I would say we're the the highest, you know, you know, value add to any fitness establishment down here in South Florida. So Got it. that's where that's where it all started. And I ran into a gentleman by the name of Dave Long, founder and CEO of Orange Theory Fitness. He was at the early stages of building that company. He had about eight, nine stores, and um I I became friendly with one of the guys. I was opening a club here in Boca and I said to him, I said, can I cater your event? I knew Dave was going to be there. You know, I knew the executives were coming and I wanted to put on a show. So Patrick being that he's a country club guy, we had, we were searing sliders and it looked like a full blown, you know, full blown event. Right. I met Dave there. And he said, would you do this for all my openings in South Florida? I said, absolutely. So, um, from there, I ended up actually buying a few Orange Series and get involved in the brand myself. But we we integrated ourselves in the brand, and that brand grew to fifteen hundred stores today domestically, and you know three thousand internationally. Um, those are the type of alignments wow. that I that I achieved early on, right? I love so so the fifteen hundred stores you got. So when you started with Orange Theory, there
1: were like nine, and you went all the way to yeah. fifteen hundred. So you catered the opening. And then picked up subscribers at every opening, I'm assuming. That Correct. Was Absolutely. Yeah. And and so the mechanics of that is, did, did, did you do the opening for free in return for the we subscribers on the in
0: the back end? Yeah, in return for marketing, right? It, please, you know, you're know you going to do this outreach and event. You're going to spend money on marketing. Include the fresh meal plan is going to be there catering and giving free food. And then they'd come there. they taste our food. We blew them away with hot food. And we are signing up 10, 20, 30 people in an event at $100 a week. And our customers are staying for a few months on end. So cost per acquisition, low. Cost of food, right? And lifetime value, high. So that's a great combination, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. How long did you get the average subscriber to stay for?
0: Like what was the tenure of a typical subscriber? So without pausing, um, we were getting three, four months. And then they would pause right? But we were getting a lot of reactivations and, and coming back three months later or next year, right? There's, there, there's a typical um, avatar of a, a client we have that will join January 1. And when that New Year's resolution dissipates at the end of the first quarter, they're gone from our service. But we're definitely extending most people's New Year's resolution. <laughs> I think yeah, the, yeah. the average resolution is somewhere around like three weeks. We were at least turning that into three months. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so they spend about a hundred bucks a week Rack.
1: About 400 bucks a month. So just yeah. doing the lifetime value. So like 1200 bucks and you're picking up 10, it's $12,000 of lifetime value on the back of one catered meal. How did you scale that in different parts of the country? Are you flying like a chef to Boston when they're starting an orange theory in Boston or in Knoxville or like,
0: how's that working? So we were doing all the openings in South Florida. Our relationship okay. changed as the brand grew. We, we turned that into a digital relationship where we were you know, doing essentially webinars with franchisees throughout the country, teaching them about the product, sending them collateral for in-store. They okay. were doing the messaging directly to their members. We scaled it and we, we did very well at it. Um, and we grew you know, with the brand, not, as, not quite as, uh, you know, as fast as they grew, um, but that's just one of few relationships. We became the um, the official meal plan provider of the Miami Dolphins down here in South Florida <laughs> in year one. So I was there pregame feeding the athletes, postgame feeding the athletes, taking pictures and using that to promote the meal plan. And again, if the Miami Dolphins are eating fresh meal plan, it's good enough for me, right? So sure. we gained that type of traction early. Um, we were we were sponsoring the, the the CrossFit games when CrossFit was exploding down here in South Florida the regionals and there'd be 200 gym owners and I'm meeting every single one and all the athletes are eating fresh meal plan. Right. Cause it's so the, the title sponsor.
1: The gym membership, sort of the gym partnerships, it sounds like it evolved. right? I'm, I'm guessing competitors came in and said, we'll give you a cut. What, like, how did it evolve? Do you remember like what the, the, uh, the kind of fork in the road was that, that uh, that made you have to start giving the gym guys uh
0: part of the deal so there were some competitors that that came in south florida only a couple of them really had had it together right so there's a low barrier to entry to get in this industry but a a large barrier to growth logistics marketing you you know delivering a fresh product to your home overnight there's a lot of challenges and growing to several hundred and thousands of customers does become challenging. From the outside looking in, it's like, oh, I could go cook food for 20, 30, 50 people, but can you do it for 500 or 1,000? And that's where Patrick brought tremendous value as we grew. I would have been relying on somebody to, to do that, and I wasn't comfortable. Um, so what we did, I um, I brought, a again, network to me is, is massive. And I brought somebody that's a fitness guy, built a telecom company, and he came to me and says, Mark, I use this program for telecom years ago, I think so, is, is really well, you know, well suited for a fresh meal plan. Let's give them a residual. So what we do is, and what we did from that point forward, we gave all the gym owners a, per, a percentage of the customer, as long as they were a customer of ours. And again, these people are spending four or $500 a month. So when you're getting, you know, eight, 10% of that per customer, you're making, you know, $40, $50 on that customer a month. You end up with a couple, you know, you know, you know, a couple dozen customers or you know, 30, 40, 50 as a as a gym owner, you're passively now eating food that you believe in and making money. And we're doing the work. Um, so that was it was a phenomenal business model. And that was that gave us major trajectory. When I then gave them a product they believed in and money, they loved us. I bet so I bet. And was there of-
1: anyone else doing that
0: at the time? Like, were there
1: any other meal delivery services offering some sort of residual or yeah, you know, cut not, cut of the deal,
0: whatever. Not like us. Not like us. They they we grew much faster. We had more to give. So they they were trying to give a little spiff bonus one time. You know, whether it would be twenty dollars, we were giving the the money ongoing in perpetuity ongoing in perpetuity. Right. It was it was residualized income, and that that incentivized the gym owner to ensure that they're checking in with the cut. How are you enjoying fresh meal plan? Because they're incentivized now. Right. The longer they're on, the more I'm making money. So let me. I love it. For food. Right. And this business was a
1: rocket ship. Like you started it and three years later, you're number 70 on the Inc 500 yeah. and, you know, 20 million in top line. Like that's crazy. That's incredible growth. How did you finance that? Like what was you, originally you and Patrick's kicked in 10, 10 grand each, but I got to imagine there was some more financing along the way to keep that growth going. What was the, how did you
0: structure that? So we really bootstrapped the company, John, um, We put the $20,000 in. All of our marketing was organic, right? And we had a healthy food cost because Patrick had relationships with all the vendors here. So we're getting bottom line pricing because he was purchasing large volume at the country club. They grandfathered us in. Every customer I was getting was my sweat. And then we started to hire people. So we never had to go back in and finance our growth. We're finding kitchens that have all the equipment there. We're buying a few things for a few thousand dollars. So we always avoided the capex. We never had anything that was capital intensive until IT kicked in. And by that time, when we really needed to get away from Google Docs and Excel, the company was significantly profitable.
1: Give me a sense of how big it was, top line margin, if you can, like net profit margin at that that time.
0: Right. So, so when we, when on, in 2015, we were in the Inc 500, we, we were just shy of 20 million at the time and we were doing it profitably, you know, single digit, um, single digit in, in the seven figure EBITDA, um, which is healthy, right? You know, it's healthy for a food establishment. It's not, sure. not easy to make money with perishable food. I can assure you that. And most of the people in this industry that we're building, were building and collecting data, not building and collecting money right? And to me, I, I'm not really into trying to build something so large to, to hope that one day I sell it for data. I mean, look, there's many company, companies that did it successfully, but I, I didn't have the, the wherewithal to, to go in that direction, nor at, at 24, 25, 26 years old, did I really understand how to go and, and get money and do all of those things. I was just putting my, my head down and building a business and, and a company that I knew everyone wanted, but I was very limited in my skill set, except I'm, I was, a, a, you know, a living testament of the product. I was fit and I had something that people wanted, right? And that caught major momentum. Now today, there's companies like uh, Freshly, right? In the direct competitor of ours, they're a billion dollar company. You, you see all these meal kits that were acquired for hundreds of millions of dollars. We were there right at the beginning before some of these people. So right place, and I, I don't say right place, right time. I say the right place too early you know, I was there trying to talk about meal plans. People weren't even wrapping their heads around it. Now you fast forward 10 years, you know, this is a, you know, it's well-known in an extremely, you know, large sector in the food space. And so what made you decide to sell? Like what was, what triggered that? So, um, in 2015, after completing that great year, um, as I'd mentioned, I, I had this strategic alignment with Dave Long from Orange Theory. Um, I found out that, um, was he a shareholder or just a partner? So, so yeah, that, that's a, you know that's that's a great question, a great place to stop me. Dave, Dave and I built a great relationship, and um, you know he saw and was interested in the company. And I uh, I use this story when I talked to young entrepreneurs because you know I've done deals since then, I've invested in companies, and um, I've had partnerships since then. I gave Dave a piece of the company when we were doing twenty million dollars. We were pretty good size, making money. And I gave him sweat equity because I knew the way that he was growing Orange Theory and the value he could bring to me. And people at the time were like, Mark, why would you ever give something of that size? And I said, listen, it'll come back to me. And sure enough, the next year, Dave you know, was doing a deal. Um, he did a private equity deal, a tremendous deal um, with a company in Atlanta, Rorick. Um, Roark Capital, they're you know, they own uh Orange Street Fitness, you know, uh, you know a, a large majority of the company. And he says, Mark, this is my banker, this is the guy that's doing my deal for me. He's really interested in putting together a group of a syndicate of individuals who are highly influential in fitness that could help you doing what you're already doing so well. You're leveraging fitness let's go own the fitness consumer. Let's not go compete online with dollars and clicks. Let's just go focus and own the fitness consumer. This investor owns that brand. This investor owns that brand. So I said, okay, great. Makes sense to me. It's working. Let's amplify the strategy. Let's add fuel to the fire, right? So they put together a group and that's how the value came back immediately to me because I don't think that I would have got that deal done without Dave, the CEO of Orange Cherry Fitness's endorsement.
1: The consortium, maybe I'm struggling to understand this. Are, are you referring to just a group of loosely affiliated partners or, or is this a private equity group that is buying companies in the fitness space?
0: So the, the, the group that invested is a syndicate. They come together. I they see. Bring okay. individuals. So they're not a fund sitting on money. Um, They're a syndicate that they find an investment and put a strategic group to do that particular transaction.
1: Isn't that interesting? I've never heard of a syndicate before. Like that's a first for me. Um, And so this is a group of people that come together to invest in a specific business. Right. And there's a lead sort of banker that sort of stitches this entire syndicate together and actually makes a a bigger cut, I'm assuming.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And then they can choose to stay in the deal or just make their money and get out of the deal. But this particular situation, you know, this banker who is doing Dave's deal says, I've got the perfect group of investors. Let me stitch them together, as you just said, and we're going to put this really valuable group together that's going to help explode the company. And that's how it came together. And, and those guys have done other deals like that as well and invested in other companies. And, hey, I got this great deal you want to get in. But there's all sorts of regulations when having a PE group and sitting on money versus saying, I've got this great deal Let's come together for this particular transaction. Mm-hmm. So that's how that group operates. Got it. So let me see if I follow the trajectory. You guys have an
1: amazing three-year run, You're 20 million single-digit EBITDA, uh, on a percentage basis. Um, Dave has been a huge partner mentor. It sounds like to some extent. And so you give him a little bit of equity. He then turns around and says, I've got this syndicate that might want to effectively buy the majority of fresh meal plan. Um, are you interested? And what was your, and I got the kind of narrative about, right?
0: Yeah, that's about right. And at the time I started getting some interest from P groups, and we, we skipped over a portion that I had raised um, raised money from uh, from angel investors down here. I was, I was out there pitching and, you know, getting out in the community and found a great angel group, uh, you know, very shortly into uh, starting the company, just a couple of years into starting the company. Okay. And, uh, and you know, so Dave says, look, you know, I know that people are talking to you. Before you do a deal, let's talk to, to you know, Brian and let's see what he's got to say. I trusted Dave. So we turned around, put a group together and consummated a transaction in the middle of 2016. Um, And at that point, you know, the the, the whole concept was, is let's go leverage fitness. Let's go meet with this brand. You're going to meet with the owner of the company. Let's go leverage their customers. They have a bunch of stores and this brand and that brand. That was the thesis. That's why they invested. They saw what we were doing good. And they're like, let's go own fitness. Let's be the the at-home meal delivery company for the fitness consumer. Got it. So I understand the choir of Fresh Fresh Meal Plan was New Heights Capital. Right. I got that right. Okay. Yep. So is
1: that the name they kind of put on the syndicate? New Heights well, they, Capital.
0: Or? They were. They were. They had already done deals in the past. Um, they, okay. they, they, they were. You know, with different investors for for, for particular deals, but the, the main principle of New Heights um, became, you know, built the name for himself by walking into this uh, this chain of gyms up in Connecticut. And they were doing okay, and he came and just flipped this thing around and turned it into a powerhouse. And then they sold it to a private equity group. So that's what put him in business. And you know, he, you know, he he made a name for himself, right? So um, yeah. from there, he had a network of people, and um, you know, he saw he saw this particular deal, put the network together, did the deal. You know and since then has done similar type of transactions and uh, you know finds people within his, his wheelhouse and they go and do their do their deals instead of just sitting on money like the traditional P groups do
1: yeah and so the, the 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 business model I've seen with these sorts of private equity investments is is that they they take out most of the founders equity, but they ask the founder to stay on uh, and roll. 20, 30% into a new entity. Is that sort of the model they used with you or can you share a little bit about That's the structure? True.
0: Sure, so they, they bought a controlling interest in the company. Um, and you know the, the whole concept was, is you know we're, we're gonna buy, we're gonna buy control of the business. We're gonna put money on the balance sheet. We're gonna amplify the growth, amplify what you're doing and we're partners, right? And I did this interfacing with very phenomenal bankers and and guys have been doing this for a long time. I'm in my mid-20s, right? So I have no idea what I'm getting myself into. You learn about terms like retrading, right? You know, here's the deal and, um, you know, oh, you know, we saw something we didn't like and- Did that happen New deal, right? Did that happen? It happened a few times. Yeah, it happened a few times.
1: What sort of things came up that caused retrading?
0: I mean, look, you, you, you look under the hood, you, you take a look at the, you know, you take a look at the business and, uh, we expanded to the Northeast. Um, we opened a kitchen up in, uh, Edison, New Jersey, and we're early into that endeavor and it wasn't going quite well at the, at the time. So, um, there was business risk around that, you know, are you going to go up there and build F, you know, FMP Fresh meal plan the same way that you did in South Florida and Florida? If so, great. If not, this could be a liability. So that we we're early on, we weren't producing, you know, cash flow at the time. So they viewed that as business risk and logistics, and and how to expand that. And we were operating down here out of South Florida. Um. So so little, you know, things like that, you know, you know, change the deal. You go from a great conversation of, hey, here's where the company is from a you know thirty thousand foot view, but here here let me see all these documents and oh okay well I view this as risk so let me change the deal a little bit and then like, okay, fine. I'm okay with that. And then, you know what? I saw this too. Let's change the deal again. Right. So you start to get worn out a little bit um, and you get deal fatigue. You know, me as a young entrepreneur, I'm like, oh, they gave me an LOI. This deal is as good as done. That's not the truth, right? The deal is not done until the ink is dry. And, you know, um, from my experience now, you know, now, you know, putting myself back in the position with other companies, I've learned a valuable lesson, you know. You know, and and would like to share with everybody listening is the value of having somebody on your side talking to the other side. Is you know, you always got to give something up, right? You have to give a few points of the equity of the sale. It's all negotiable, but that's important. Um, even having done that now, if I go into a large sale again, I'm going to have a banker there. It's sort of like selling your house without a realtor, right? I mean. Sure, I could, you know, sell my house without a realtor, but then everyone who walks in my house, I have to vet, make sure that criminals aren't walking in where my kids live. Right? That's sure. that's the that's the job of the realtor. Or same thing, you wouldn't go into litigation without an attorney and represent yourself. It's the same thing from from my experience, what what I what I went through in selling a business.
1: And and so you would use a, a mergers and acquisitions professional investment bank or business broker, like one like that, somebody represent you effectively right. if you were to do it again. I would, and, I would. And your primary reason for that, and I think that's sage advice. I, I share that a lot. Um, but your primary reason is, is that, is this retrading it, that, that you think they could have perhaps controlled that a little bit more Definitely. effectively. Yeah. How many times did you get retraded on? Like how many, how many different a you few know, times. Yeah, it happened a few, a few like, times. As in three.
0: three. Yeah. 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 A few yeah. as in three. And um yeah, I mean, listen, if you have you have the banker on your side and essentially their banker um is calling my banker and say, Hey, we don't like this. My banker could handle it differently and say, you know what, we got so many other groups that are interested. Maybe this is not the right fit for you, right? I mean, I wasn't prepared to do that they saw how committed I was to the deal. And I think it was used against me, you know, and, uh, and, and things like that, of that nature, I took a look back after I'm like, wow, you know, um, this, you know, from where it starts to where it ends, and you hear the horror stories in in dealing with, uh, you know, private equity groups, and how very few and far between can a group of individuals with strong personalities work together. You know, the, the, the saying, uh, you know, um, you know I, I, I speak to Grant Cardone, you know, periodically, and he, uh, you know, we, we talked about a particular transaction. He says, Mark, sometimes there's too much firepower at the top, right? And I think this was a, a classic case of there's, there's sometimes too much firepower at the top. Or another one of, of, his, of his quotes that he gave me is, the only thing worse than a bad general is two good generals. And I think that that's here. Is is, uh, you come in, you invest in founders that you you know they built this company, and then you come in with this vision of how you see the company, and then you've got to align the two. And if it happens, great. But if it doesn't, then you know it doesn't really work out. And in this particular situation, that's how that happened.
1: You you characterize your friendship with Dave Long as that, right? right? You are very tight, close. Dave was the one that brought the deal to the table did did your loyalty to dave affect your willingness to f- negotiate when the retrading started happening like yeah. I, you know i don't want to piss off my you know dave by pushing
0: hard with this great group that he's brought to the table. Was there that sort of loyalty that that came into effect? No, it it didn't because Dave was on my side, right? Dave was a shareholder of Fresh Meal Plan. He wanted the best deal for us. He was sitting on calls and he was listening, giving advice. Um, you know, but a busy guy, right. So, you know, building a, a billion dollar brand simultaneously, but he was on calls with me at midnight and, hmm. and, and the whole deal. Um, but no, I mean, listen, this was a, a scenario of let's do what's best for us. Um, at the same time, I wasn't prepared for, you know, how, how this all played out. And I didn't know how to compose myself in my mid twenties, knowing that I'm about to do a, a, a good size deal that could change my life effectively. And they saw that, you know, they saw when they would, you know, deliver news. I'm like, "Well, well, hold on, hang tight. And that's viewed as weakness, right? Whereas if you have somebody in the middle to take, you know, to kind of buffer the scenario and play a little hardball. I didn't play hardball. I was a pushover, right? So it was my first time doing it and um, didn't have the experience, and, and but absolutely a learning lesson and wouldn't have changed what I'd done because it absolutely built momentum for me financially um, doing that transaction and built a phenomenal network. And I'm going to put myself back in that position, luckily, many times again. I'm, I'm 34 years old. Um, so that's the good news, right, is I don't look backwards. I don't regret. It's not good. It's not healthy. You close the door, you learn. And you move on and you say, I'm going to be here again. And when I'm there again, I'm going to do it bigger. I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to learn from these mistakes. And here's, here's how I'll do it differently. Right. So the retrading, having an MA professional
1: represent you so that you didn't uh, victimize is probably too strong a word, but you right. didn't get, get, get uh, affected by retrading. Uh, what else might you do if you had the deal over again, uh, Again, I'm thinking of other entrepreneurs listening to this thinking, you know, I'm about to do a deal with a private equity group. They want me to roll 30% of my equity into a new entity,
0: like any advice or, or maybe do-overs that, that you might share? Well, we we had, we had a holding company, so nothing got rolled over essentially into a new entity. A a holding company was just created um, where, where, you know, everything gets shifted over there. So that part wasn't uncomfortable for me. Um, the, the part that was most uncomfortable is I was selling control of the business. And I didn't realize when you sell control of your business, you're selling your business. You've, you've sold your business and whatever you got that day for, for selling control of your business could be the last dollar you see from your business. Right. And that didn't quite resonate with me well enough. I didn't realize that I don't make the decisions anymore. I thought I was still going to make decisions and they came in to support me as, you know, the founder who grew this business. Um, and and that's, that's, you know, the, the part that my lack of experience in being in that position um, sort of backfired on me. And that set in over the next few years. And, and had I really understand that better, had I understand that better, um, I don't know if I would have done that deal. I don't know if I would have. Um, like I said, there's, I don't regret what I did. But um, I think that, you know, I could have continued building that business from where I was. And I think that I was the best decision maker for the business at the time and would have continued to be for many levels to come. And, uh, you know, again, when you when you do a deal with these guys, you have a lot of different personalities, a lot of different opinions. But I was the expert in this space. And, you know, I look back and I say, wow, when I because I want to be in private equity, I, I essentially Am in private equity a sense that I use my own money and I fund deals, but I don't run a fund. Let's say, but that's private equity, right? Um, when I give somebody money and and I and I were to invest in a company, I would be certain that that the first thing I'm going to do is ensure that I make the person I'm investing in, the company I invest in, comfortable. How can I help you? How can I, you know, I, I I put this money behind you. So how do we work well together? How do how do we get the best out of this relationship? So I can make you know, return on my money for myself and all of my investors. Um, whereas it was for me, it was a combative relationship, not a, a cohesive relationship. And I sit back and I say, wow, if I wrote somebody a check and I infuse this kind of capital into someone else's business, boy, would I be protecting it? And, and if I find weaknesses, cause I'm more experienced than, than Mark as a CEO, and he's a young CEO, um, I would find his weaknesses and I would find ways to, to, to plug those, those, you know, holes. Right. And I had weaknesses, but I had a lot of strengths as well. And I felt as if my strengths were overlooked and the weaknesses were not essentially filled, but just, you know, essentially trampled over. And, and I could, and and to this day, I don't understand that. I'm like, wow, like you had a business with momentum in 2015, 16, an opportunity to take a company at least to nine figures or 10 figures, like we've seen a few times since then. No question the people were at the table in order to do that. All the firepower was there. Um, But in in this instance, it was too much firepower. You look at our board of directors. I mean, it was powerful. You know, I mean, you got a guy, uh, ABC Financial, they're the largest, you know, CRM platform in fitness. They control um, the billing portal. They have all the information of the majority of fitness, right? And then you got Dave Long and you got the bankers who bank the largest transactions in fitness and all the operators and the founders. I'm like, this is a, a, a 100% lock solid thing that we're going to explode this company. And that it, it just didn't happen. Wow. So, so what happened? What, what, what gave you like,
1: what, what, so you sell the majority uh, of the shares, like what was your first inkling that maybe this isn't what I thought I was signed up for?
0: During, during the transaction, um, before the deal closed, I saw that there was uh, definitely personality conflict and, and I, between and I said, you
1: and somebody or
0: yeah but between me and the other side essentially the, me and the group coming in i was so deal committed though you know i was deal committed but i started to have these this gut feeling i'm like this doesn't feel right like this the, i feel like we should be getting along better or you know but i kept saying to myself when the transaction is done then we'll all be on the same team though so you know at that point they'll put their money in and things are going to change it didn't change uh, it, it simply didn't change. It was it was a continuation. I'm like, wow, you know, this is this isn't going to last too long, you know. And uh, sure enough, I stayed on as a CEO for two more years till uh, till the middle of 2018, and then from there, I was uh, no longer the CEO. I stayed on. Um, I was essentially, you know, a VP for the company, helping business development, ongoing relationships with big brands. Brought a few other big brands to the table myself. Um, executed on that. And, um, you know, when we got hit with COVID and that whole boots on the ground strategy came to an end for whatever, you know, for that at that time, um, I stepped away from the company and was no longer day to day. So, you know, early 2020, I just held my seat as a board member. And, um, you know, that's that's the position I'm in now. Um, and just watching a company that, you know, um, could have and should have, right, could have and should have been, but at the same token, there's, there's no regrets. I built a phenomenal Orange Theory fitness portfolio by knowing Dave, invest in a few other great companies that I'm building and, you know, having, you know, great success with. So there's no regrets, but I look back and I say, had I done these things better or had I known these things, this company could have easily been a nine figure company. So I'll just use that as a lesson to help me get these other businesses to that level. Right. So now I know, um, you know, what I didn't know then. And, and I'm still at a do, young age. So.
1: And do you still own part of Fresh Meal Plan?
0: I do. Yeah, I'm still a large shareholder.
1: Okay. And, and what is the, the prospect for getting liquidity on that ownership
0: piece? So, the, the prospect is, is we have to become very strong at digital marketing. I never really focused too heavily on digital. Um, I was the boots on the ground guy. Um, I was building relationships. I never sat there and learned. And, and and you know how to monetize a customer online because uh, I was doing so well at, w- well at what I was doing at that sure. moment. But I do, but it, but I do regret it, right? Because had I done what I did on on the boots on the ground and been strong at digital, we would have been a powerhouse. <laughs> and that's to, to, the, the the lack of my experience. Um, that I wasn't experienced in digital marketing, right? I was I was the, the a personal trainer in my mind and was just again at the right place early with a phenomenal product. And it just, uh, it made sense. No one, no one thought that my product wasn't great. And no one thought that it was, no one thought it was overpriced. No one, no one had anything really negative to say about the product. So winning customers was easy.
1: Yeah. I'm so surprised there was tension. Like you seem like we don't know each other beyond our conversation today, but like, you seem like a super affable guy, friendly, outgoing, like you obviously are really good with people or you wouldn't be able to sign up all these gyms and personal (laughs) training. Like, I'm like, how on earth did, did you have, like, like, what did you guys (laughs) disagree on? Like, that's the part that I'm like lost about because you just seem like a, a, like a a good guy to hang out with. I can't imagine them being frustrated with anything.
0: (laughs) I, I think that if, if we were just hanging out with them, that we would be hanging out. I think that there's no personality conflict. I think that it's, disappointment in execution in a certain areas for me. Like I wasn't wonderful at managing technology. So that, that created tension in the relationship instead of, Hey, Mark, you're not doing well at managing this project. Let's bring someone to manage it. Go focus at, at building relationships. Cause we know you're great at that. And that's, it was, it was continuing to force me into doing something I wasn't good at. So it was letting them down. I was letting them down in certain areas and you know, that's not the best use of my time. But but look, at the end of the day, you, we just kept pushing and pushing and saying, just go and push and push. But I wasn't, I wasn't doing well there. And I was taking time away from the things I was, you know, uh, was excelling at, right? So mm-hmm. to me, that was a lot of the conflict is I was great at a few things in the company, but there was a few things in the company that I was not great at, but I was still managing those things as well. Because look, that's the role of a CEO, right? The CEO- sure needs to oversee all elements of the company. And I just was having trouble figuring out the technology. Um, it was, you know, look, there was no platform that could run this business soup to nuts. It was built from scratch. And um, there was a lot of, you know, a lot of disappointment in the technologists I hired. You know what they say is that the, the greatest salesmen are the the easiest people sold. Uh, I believe. that. (laughs) I've heard that before. And I think I totally agree with you. (laughs) I mean, these technologists come in and they look the part. They just are saying big words like, great, you're hired. And, you know, a few months in, I'm like, wait a second, this is nowhere where it needs to be. I didn't map the project out properly. I didn't know anything about process mapping and doing all the things that I know now. And here's the whole project on paper now go execute it it was very haphazard and i wasted a ton of money a ton of my own money before they came in and a ton of money after they came in and you know i think that instead of saying hey mark go focus on these things we need you as part of the company it was more of like you know listen uh COVID's here the relationships on the ground is is no longer apart currently this doesn't make sense for any of us right now and it, it didn't it truly didn't yeah. Yeah. um so the company shifted and now is purely focused on digital marketing. And um, the CEO currently running the business um, looks like he um, can take the business to the next level digitally. Um, but at the end of the day, we, we do want to own the market we're in, which is Florida. We want to be the winner in Florida. We want to be the ones that, that own the state and we have to do well digital marketing. And I think that I'll, I'll see the second bite of the apple at some point down the road. Um, so that's my focus now is being a board member ha- contributing however I can. And I'm actually working on a couple of projects with the company, uh, bringing some, you know, celebrity, uh, personalities to, to do a couple of things that, that'll help grow the business. Cause I'm, I'm incentivized to do so. Um, yeah, you're you know, still I, I sure. They, yeah. How much of your equity did you sell versus keep in the business? They, they, they slightly bought a controlling interest. Yeah. Just so, they, they, more they, than half. Just, but- yeah. Just, just over half. Yeah. So it's still still plenty incentivized, you know, my founding partner and I.
1: Yeah,
0: I would I would think so.
1: And I know we can't get into specifics on the valuation, but can you just give us a rough idea how they valued the business sure. as a multiple Absolutely. revenue rebuttal? Yeah.
0: No, no problem. I, I want I want everybody to kind of understand. And it, you know, look, at the time food tech was hot. I mean, just saying the word food tech, you people are throwing money at you. It's such a it's it sounds so good. At the end of the day, I was a meal plan company. But at the, you know, really technology marketing is what drove the business food was just the byproduct. Um, so the, mm-hmm. the valuations were rich at the time. I mean, high single digit um, multiples of EBITDA was, was, you know, really the benchmark at the time. Um, and I even did better in the angel round. I did in the, in the double digits of EBITDA wow. with my angel group. Um, because it was so hot. I was executing and making money. The, the difference was is people were growing top line, but they didn't understand bottom line. Keeping my cost per acquisition low was giving us a nice bottom line return. And everybody was thrilled to see that because it's not easy to make money in the space. Most oh, don't. Because
1: of the hard costs and the perishable inventory. And yeah. So how did the angel investors make out From the deal, like when they were they like how did they sort of end up faring in the in the
0: transaction? So you know, I did my transaction. They got their money out first. You know, we call that you know call that the one x provision, right? Money out, and then they convert to shareholders. Sorry, what I don't understand what you're referring to. So what is the one x? So how does that work? Yes. I mean, you know, some groups operate this way where they'll give you an injection of capital. And once they get all of that money back, they'll convert to a shareholder. So Um, they're effectively giving you debt. I mean, it's it's not debt on the books because it's their own cash. But let's say, you know, for example, using, you know, half a million dollars, you know, one X would mean here's your half a million dollars. But when the business sells, if it sells, I get my half a million dollars out first, right? Here's, I get my half a million first. And then I then have this equity component based on what we value the business at, right? So if it's $10 million and they got 10% of it, they get their half a million first and then their 10 million or their, apologize, They're their 10%. 10% of-, 10% of the 10 million. Yeah. Got it. And is that a
1: standard angel round
0: structure? Is, is that like a, It's just semi-standard. Yeah, it's semi-standard. Yeah, I spoke to a few angel groups, and this group happens to be a phenomenal group. I mean, I wouldn't even mind mentioning the name that the Tammy Amy Angels down here in Naples. These guys are, I mean, they function more like a private equity group than an angel group. I mean, Naples is a hub for Fortune 500 CEOs where they go and retire. I believe that Naples has more Fortune 500 CEOs. Than any part of the country, or or up there, was at least the last few years. And boy, did this group operate like a like you know a big a big fund, you know. So that's really yeah. cool. So yeah. the
1: angel guy, guys and gals, the investors, they got yeah. their money out, and then did they get a return after that, or how did they? How did it work so out for them?
0: They, they sit on the cap table with me, you know. So we're. Oh, we're all, I see.
1: So they're still. I see. So when you ultimately sell.
0: Yeah, yeah, they, they'll get their yeah. yeah, got it. I
1: love it. It's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I feel, I feel like I've learned a ton. I've learned what a syndicate is. I feel like I now understand angel investing more effectively. <laughs> so that's great. Um, I know people are going to want to reach out and, and, and say hi. What, what's the best way? To, are you a LinkedIn guy, a Twitter guy? What's, where, where can people find you?
0: So I, I use Instagram mainly for family, you know, so I keep it private, but I'm more than happy to, to accept people who, who are reaching out. You, to be honest with you, I, I don't know if you're using it, but I am a, I'm a huge fan of Clubhouse. I've are you really? Been, you're the been, first person I've
1: actually met other than like celebrity people I follow on Twitter or whatever, yeah. that actually use it. So that's interesting. What are, you, what are you getting out of it?
0: I'm on Clubhouse and I'm in these rooms and I'm essentially a moderating rooms. I'm, I'm a, on a panel and okay. we're bringing up people and we're in these pitch rooms and I'm doing deals. I've done a couple of deals on Clubhouse. Really? People come on and say they got this great product. I go into diligence with them. I've met partners who I'm doing business with. I've met Wow. Okay. So I don't know anything about
1: Clubhouse. I downloaded the app. I know nothing about it. So yeah, where can is. people reach you on Clubhouse? Do you have like a handle or what is this? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. so if you type in my name, Mark Elkman, M-A-R-C-E-L-K-M-A-N, you'll find me on Clubhouse. Um, I'm there and you get same way. Find me with the same name on Instagram uh, as well. So those, those are the two the two main you know main ways to find me. You make me. me feel old, man. No, no, you got to get on Clubhouse. <laughs> I'm you're serious. making me feel old. This is terrible. Oh, yeah, we'd have a good time. I mean, I think you should sign up. You actually, what's cool about Clubhouse is you actually need to be uh, accepted. So recommended you sign- a Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. You, you sign up for it and it's not like you're in. You, people that are in that have your contact will be alerted and they're like, yeah, I'll accept you or I won't. And that to me was pretty exclusive. Actually, Facebook was similar back when it started. You have to have a college, you know, address, you know, to I remember that. Clubhouse, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. So I was like, it was exclusive and Clubhouse has that exclusivity. And I mean, I've never gotten more on a platform than Clubhouse and I'm, I'm by no means on their payroll. <laughs>
1: oh, that's
0: cool. Okay. Well, we'll look so, you up.
1: Mark Elkman, Mark with a C, M-A-R-C on Clubhouse or Instagram. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this, Mark. Don, it was great connecting with you. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're going to love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to BuiltToSell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to BuiltToSell.com.